it's uh, pretty humbling to sing a song that says, why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. Um, and I think that uh, the amazing thing about that question is there is no answer. And isn't that the power of grace? Isn't that why we've gathered church? There is no rhyme or reason outside of his pursuing love and grace and mercy that we should gain. And so we get the opportunity then to be gathered as the church, gaining from a reward that we haven't earned that isn't deserved to us. And we get to, we get to learn how to better fall in love with that God. And I pray by everything that happens here tonight, every word that's spoken, every spirit that's inside of you, the Holy Spirit that continues to convict you of your sin and, and breathe the word to you, I pray that everything tonight happens for the glory of God. Amen? I wonder what makes you the most nervous. What makes you the most nervous? Is it, um, is it, a, is it a big date, any of you? Like before a big date, you're just like, it's like sweaty everything, Right? Is it a, a meeting with a boss? Is it before the big game? Is it an interaction with a friend that you haven't seen in a while? When do you get the most uh, nervous? For me, it was a consistent time. I played college football. I was a quarterback, kind of, and um, had a good experience at McKendry College. And there was always this week-long period after we showed up at camp that was a time of evaluation. Okay, so everyone would come back from the summer. We would weigh in. We would show how much we could bench press, which always was humbling for me because I was one of the least, right? I know you wouldn't believe that about me, but it's true. Uh, I couldn't bench press very much. Um, We would run 40s. We would have a week of practice, a lot of evaluation. And then there was that one practice when the coach always said, tomorrow morning the depth chart will be posted in the locker room. Well, the depth chart if you've ever played uh, any kind of sport that uses this kind of system, is one of the scariest moments in your life. Because this is the moment after evaluation that your fate is posted on a bulletin board, right? So in college, what happens is they rank all of the players based upon where they are. So at quarterback, there were seven of us. So it was possible that you could be the seventh string quarterback, right? Which is pretty well demoralizing at that point, right? In fact, the sixth and seventh uh, places uh, just quit the team. But it's, it's a crazy thing. The walk for me from the dorm room to the depth chart was some of the most nerve-wracking moments of my life. And you, try, you walk in the locker room and you're trying to act like it's no big deal, right? You're just like walking in and you see everyone huddled around the thing. You're like, oh, I'm sure I'm starting, right? And so you just kind of, but then you're like, you're, you're caught in and all of a sudden you find yourself looking for your name. And I remember the feeling like my stomach was going to explode, like everything in me was just, it was just, it was an irky feeling being so nervous. How about for you? When are you the most nervous? I would venture to say for most of us, it comes after a time of evaluation, whether it be in dating or relationships or with a boss or with a coach. The times that we get the most nervous is when we've been evaluated by people And they're getting ready to share with us what they have seen or what they have evaluated. It's a nerve-wracking time because they're getting ready to evaluate our our character. Listen, tonight we come to uh, certain passages that are very evaluating of us. And tonight is one of those. Every single one of us tonight will have the opportunity to do some deep evaluation 
and I personally going into tonight for my own life have a lot of nervous energy. And you may not understand this, but every time that I preach the word of God, it's, it's coming out because of what's happened in worship and study. And every time that I communicate the word of God, I myself am being convicted of the sin in my life. And so I approach tonight with a nervous energy, knowing that God is going to, I hope, bring my sin to the forefront and call me to where I need to repent and turn from it. Are you with me? So listen, one more thing and then we're going to get going. I was reading Nehemiah chapter 8 this morning. Listen to this. I keep saying the last three weeks, and I've prayed this a hundred times, the joy of the Lord is my strength. For some reason, it's popped in my mind. And so this morning, I get on uh, ESV.org, brilliant website, right? If you have never been there, check it out. And I type in the joy of the Lord is my strength. I've never seen where this verse comes from before. And so I, I land at this Nehemiah 8 passage. Listen to this. Ezra stands in front of the assembly, the scripture says. Listen. And he reads the law of God. And the scripture says this, that the assembly that could understand, they fell to their face in worship at the reading of the law. Now listen. Later in the passage, Ezra's trying to encourage this group of people because what he's seeing is everyone is weeping, the scripture says. Because at the very reading of the law, it's caused so much conviction in how they don't measure up to God that they're broken. And you know what Ezra says? He says, no, no, no. This is the day that is holy to the Lord. And that's when he says the joy of the Lord is our strength. It's this beautiful meshing, listen, of repentance and the sorrow that comes with it but the joy that comes in grace and mercy. Are you with me? Tonight, I'm praying that those two things collide. That God breaks us, that each of us evaluate, and that repentance and joy that comes in Christ marry themselves in a beautiful moment for you and I. So let's pray for that to happen, all right? God, by your grace and mercy alone and your strength alone and your words alone, I pray that you would exalt your name above all others. I pray tonight, God, for me to get out of the way that your word can be communicated in such a way, God, that would, that would pull us in to who you are. And so, God, show us who you are as God that we may be your people in this room in your holy and awesome and wonderful name. And all of God's people said... Amen. Open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. The page number is on your screen if you're using one of our Bibles. We've been journeying in 1 Peter. We only have uh, three weeks left in 1 Peter. And I want to read the passage that we studied last week to catch us up because tonight is much along the same lines. So when you're there, say, I'm there. You guys are all scholars. So quick on the turn of page. 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 1 says this. So I exhort the elders among you. As a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. That's what we studied last week. I'll build the context in a moment. Verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears... 
you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Here's what we learned last week. An elder is synonymous with shepherd, pastor, and overseer in the scriptures. So an elder is a pastor, an overseer is a pastor, a shepherd is a pastor. It's all one term. Though you may grow up putting different terminology on the leaders of the church, that is the biblical model. And the picture we got of biblical eldership last week is this. They are not to be empowered for their own namesake. They're not to sit in a place of authority to be some rock star pastor. They're not to sit in a place of domination. They're to be literally a servant leader. That is a pastor. The very definition of a biblical shepherd or elder is one who is the lead servant. Many of us have not experienced that. At times, I confess, I struggle with that, but that is our call. As elders in this church, and there's three currently, Matt, Jeff, and I, we are called to be the lead servants of this church community. That's the picture of church leadership. It's a hefty call. We looked at in 1 Timothy that this, the scripture says that we're to be above reproach. This high level of integrity, not perfect because it's impossible, but a high level of integrity with quick repentance. And so tonight, Peter keeps along the same lines, and he says this beautiful phrase in verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears. Uh, now, this could get confusing, right? He could be talking about some super baller old school pastor, right? Like he's talking about Paul, when the chief shepherd appears, right? In his like limousine of a, of a you know, cattle drive. Like he, when he shows up, when that chief shepherd shows up. But that's, that's not what he's talking about. When the chief shepherd appears, he's making clear reverence, reference rather to the, to the King Jesus. Over and over and over in scriptures, Jesus is called a shepherd, one of my favorite in Hebrews 13, where he's called the great shepherd. Now, I don't know if you know anything about shepherding. I'm not a big cultural shepherd guy, but I'll try to convey some of the things that I know. Shepherding was one of the um, ancient low, lowliest of low jobs. Here was their task. They were charged with gathering this flock of sheep and moving about to green pastures so the sheep can eat, right? It's not rocket science. But their job got tricky because wolves would try to attack the sheep. And so they became the protectors then of the flock. Interestingly enough, they would often and always sleep with the flock to protect them. So there was this very close relationship with the shepherd and the sheep. Now, the scripture says the chief shepherd will appear. And this is where our evaluation begins. The scripture says that there's a chief shepherd, that that's true. And the crazy thing about the Bible is this, whether you or I believe it or not, it doesn't negate its truth or its value. So when the scripture says that, that there's a chief shepherd and that, that is King Jesus, no matter whether you believe it or not, it doesn't negate the truth. Truth is truth. Are we together? 
So the question for you and I is, if he's the chief shepherd, then is he my chief shepherd? Is he your chief shepherd? So I want to examine this about a specific passage where Jesus talks about his shepherding. So in your Bibles, turn to John chapter 10. The page number is on the screen if you have our Bible. John chapter 10, we're going to be starting in verse 7. And I want to look at four different aspects that we need to evaluate tonight to understand if Jesus is your chief shepherd. The scripture says he is the chief shepherd. He's above all the other shepherds. Of all the elders in this earth, he is the one that is above all. Chief in the Greek is literally chief, all right? John chapter 10, verse 7 says this. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Put up this slide for me. The first question that you need to ask is this. Is he your means of salvation and hope? If Christ is your chief shepherd, then he is the means for you of salvation and your ultimate hope. There's no other answer. There's nowhere else you turn. You don't turn to yourself or culture or some prophet of the world. You consistently turn to the Lord Jesus for your greatest sense of hope. Listen, let's talk about hope for a moment, shall we? When you're in the dumpers, like the absolute worst thing has happened to you, you're, you're wrestling with some momentary depression, in that moment you reveal where your hope is. For, for some of you, it might, it might be alcohol in that moment, right? You convey that in that moment, it's the alcohol that can provide some kind of hope. Because, and I've heard this often, just because it will help me forget everything, Right? For others of you, it's just to surround yourself with as many encouragers as possible, as many relationships as people that will just pump you up. And we all have those, right? People that just, when you get around them, they're just, it's amazing. So some of you do that. But someone who believes that Jesus is the chief shepherd, listen, has nowhere else to go. He's their means of salvation. They believe that I can't be saved by works at all, but I'm saved completely by what Christ has done. That is when Jesus is their chief shepherd. So I ask you, in answer to number one, is he your chief shepherd? Jesus goes on, look at this in verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He who is a hired hand, and look, this is beautiful. He who is a hired hand, verse 12, and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. This is such a profound picture of our king. The hired hand, he says, sees the wolf and bails. But look what he says. Look at this. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I, however, am the good shepherd. And look what he says, look what he says, I know my own and my own know me. I do not flee. The scripture says, I will never leave you or forsake you. It's a promise. If you're his sheep, his children, he's not the hired hand that bails at disaster. He protects, he doesn't forsake. That's the power of God. And so I ask you this, question number two, do you know him? 
and I want to get more specific. Do you know him today? And you're like, but Mark, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. He's unchanging. But do you know him today? Have you had interaction with him today through his word and prayer and worship that you could communicate new truths about his character today? Listen, it's like, it's like other relationships in some senses. Though you have acquaintances, if you spend a significant amount of time away from them, you stop knowing them. Knowing what they're wrestling with or what they're going through or how they're dealing with life. Well, the great thing about knowing God is he is unchanging, but there are new mercies that he keeps revealing to us in our understanding, and that's the power of God. Here, I have this for you today. I want to show you this piece of me. I, knew, I know you didn't understand it yesterday, but today, open the scripture to Nehemiah 8 like I did this morning. Do you know him? If he is your chief shepherd, one of the things that you're communicating is you know him. And not a year ago, when you were really fired up, when you were really encouraged about the gospel. Do you know him today, right now? Could you say, like in the last couple days, here's what God's done. If he's your chief shepherd, that's what you're communicating. He goes on in verse 15. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. He's talking about the Gentiles here. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. If he's your chief shepherd, then you ask yourself this question. Are you listening to his voice? You're like, well, Mark, I hear sometimes of people saying that God spoke to them, right? In fact, I've had a moment in my life where I felt like God spoke to me. But God never stops speaking through his word. His voice is consistent through the scripture. This is what he has given us, his word, to daily hear his voice. And the power for those of us who claim Christianity is we have indwelling in us the Holy Spirit. That as we read the word, the Spirit reveals the power of the word and the character of God. And that's why I always say, when I read the Bible, my first question is not, how does this apply to me? Like so many of you do. You open a Nehemiah 8 and you're like, well, how does this apply to me? <laughs> you're like reading about the law and how these people responded, right? No, no, no. What does this reveal about the character of God? And then consistently, daily, you get the chance to hear his voice. Because his character is just packed in these pages. And so every day as we read the scripture, it's, God, will you speak to me today? Will you show me more of yourself? Will you give me a better picture of you that I might fall more in love with you? And that's why I always say, when you understand the character of God at deeper levels, which I didn't get from 18 to 22, you fall more in love with God. Because the depth of his character is unsearchable. And that's the power of him. You start getting involved in, his, in the, just the depth of who he is. And you realize how great and holy and majestic God is. If he's your chief shepherd, then you're, then you're listening for his voice. And there's many competing voices. Amen? Right? There's a lot of noise in our culture. There's a lot of distractions. So you can be very easily distracted by some other competing voice. But listen, a sheep knows the voice of a shepherd. 
there is my shepherd, you see? Lastly, he says this at the end of verse 16b. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. The last question I have for you is this. Are you following one shepherd? Right? Like a sheep that knows a shepherd and knows the voice, they don't get confused by other leaders or other things that can be imposters. The sheep follow one shepherd. Are you following one shepherd? Or are there these gaps of culture, these gaps of following man to please man? What's your, what's your answer here? There is a chief shepherd. Is he yours? No. It's kind of disheartening, isn't it? For those of you that are Christians in here, you have different answers than those that aren't. Those that aren't believers in here, right, you're like, well, no, I, he's not my chief shepherd, and all of those are no. And for those of you that are here, I just want to encourage you with the fact that he can be, that his grace is sufficient for all that you think that you can't come to him with because you're so messy, join the club. That's the power of the cross. You don't clean up and then come to God. You come to God with all that you are, and he gives you a new, he makes you a new creation. For those of us that are believers, this is kind of disheartening, isn't it? For me, as I look at this now, and as I've been wrestling with this for a few days, I'm like, see your means of salvation and hope? Most of the time. But man, there's certainly some times where I feel like I'm trying to earn my way for God's approval, that I'm serving so that other people would see me, that I'm communicating truths of the Bible that people might think that I'm knowledgeable. Most of the time, but there's certainly some times. Do you know him? There's definitely some days that I, I sense that I do, that his character is being revealed to me in powerful ways, that I just sense this connection with him, but honestly, there's other days where I just, just feel like I don't, right? Are you listening to his voice? In the moments when I'm not listening to my own, Mark, what do you mean? Well, it's, it's so easy, and this, this may not occur to you, but it's so easy just to daily listen to your own voice. You just hear yourself blabble day in and day out, and it almost, gets, it almost becomes amusing to you, and you, you find approval in the fact that you're hearing what you're saying to people, no matter what the context. And lastly, are you following one shepherd That question for me just hits at the heart of me because it's so easy to deviate off, off course. It's so easy for a moment to begin to follow this sector that seems so promising that ultimately isn't the gospel. Now, this is the moment of repentance for us. For those of us that are believers in this room, in this moment of evaluation, as you say, well, is he my chief shepherd? Listen, that's the power of him being the chief shepherd. Is in this moment of evaluation, you sit back and you say, I am utterly dependent upon the shepherd 
because I am a sheep and I will go my own way, Scripture says. And therein lies the power of King Jesus. I don't measure up, I don't measure up, I don't measure up, I don't measure up. But because of him and his blood, God calls me his son. God says I'm a new creation. God says the old is gone and the new has come. Romans 6 says that my sins have been crucified on the cross. Though I still struggle and though I still fail through faith in Christ and repentance, the cross of Christ is my hope. And so you know what? For me, I say I struggle, but he is my chief shepherd. I got nowhere else to go. I have no other voice of hope, no other place to turn. He is my chief shepherd. God, will you just break my heart in repentance of these ways that I fail and turn to other leaders and listen to other voices and turn to other shepherds. But God, know this. My desire is to follow you. That's our cry tonight, church, right? And why the urgency? Like you may be like, Mark, you always seem so intense. I get that all the time, right? Like daily. On the phone. Like, dude, settle down, right? You're like Jojo the Idiot Circus Boy. Like, take a deep breath. Listen, every, every day, and I'm trying to do this more and more, and so I may even get more intense as the days goes along, I'm just realizing the urgency of this life. And I know I talk about it all the time, but last night, again, I thought about it. I tuck Avery in bed, and as I'm shutting the door, I think this could be the last time I ever shut the door telling my girl goodnight. I live, or at least try to, with that sense of urgency. Why? What does the scripture say? That there's a chief shepherd and he's going to what? He's going to appear. He's coming back at a day and an hour that's unknown. The scripture says he's coming back like a thief in the night. He will appear In Revelation 19, there's this beautiful picture of the bride, which is the church, and the bridegroom, which is Christ. And they have this wedding feast of the Lamb, the Scripture says. And it's all this symbolic nature of Christ coming back to take his children. He will appear. He is coming back. Maybe tomorrow, may 2,000 years from now. Who knows? But he's coming. The chief shepherd is coming back to get his sheep. Does that encourage you a little bit, church? We're not wandering around aimlessly. We're wandering around waiting for his return. And if we return to dust and ultimately to eternal glory before that day, then praise God. But if not, we await him. And so there's a sense of urgency. And every time we gather, we're not playing Christian patty cake and giving each other high fives and hugs, trying to make each other feel good through coddling. No. We say the gospel or nothing. That's why I'm so intense because this message and this text continues to remind me that this is life or death every day. He's going to appear. And the scripture says this, and I love this. You will receive the unfading crown of glory. Uh, brought this into the office earlier, and uh, Chris and Brandon thought it was for them. It was not, though that would have been sweet. Uh, I don't claim to be a gardener. Is that the right word? Gardener? How many of you guys are just good gardeners? Okay. There's a, what's the hetero, what's the right, what's the horticulturist? Okay. Oh, boy. Just take that off the podcast. So, um. So on my landscaping at my house, and for those of you that have been to my house, um, 
you know this, there's this, uh, this retaining wall that's, being, that's breaking as we speak because it's all crumbling, which is awesome. And I don't know how to fix it. I don't know how to do anything handy. But I, I don't know this premise that you like have to water your, your stuff. Like, I'm like, God will bring the rain. I'm like a trusting farmer. You know what I'm saying? God will bring the rain. He will. And so literally, if you come to my house every week, the landscaping changes. Because my, my, my jive dies, you know, like this flower dies, and, and my wife can attest to this. She's like, where are you going? I'm like, to Lowe's, to do what? To buy more landscaping, right? Because the bush, I plant it, and I'm, I'm like, God, you know, and it just dies, right? It just, it, it crumbles, and so I go to Lowe's again, and I plant new. If you go there right now, like almost the whole thing's cleaned out, because I just, last week, everything just died. Now listen. The Greek word unfading here, crazy, crazy Greek word, is a Greek word, and I, I want to get this right. It's amerontanos. Amerontanos is a Greek word that's talking about a flower. Not a rose, but a flower. And this particular Greek word, talking about a flower, implies a flower that even if you were to take its petals off, as long as you were keep watering it, it would replenish its petals. It's, the thought is that it's a, it's a flower that doesn't die. It's like an immortal flower is the Greek word. So, so the scripture says this, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This crown of glory that doesn't fade and doesn't die. It doesn't do anything but remain. Now, crown. Let's work with this. The... Uh, Greek word is Stephanos. Everyone say Stephanos. Have you ever seen pictures of the ancient Greeks at the Olympic Games and they would wear like the, the, the wreath around their noggin, right? Have you guys seen these pictures? This is the image here. It, it's this, this crown that's a wreath that they would give for a sign of what? Anyone? The old Olympics. Who would wear it? The victors. So here's what Peter says. When he appears, you will receive a crown a victory that doesn't fade. So many people um, have asked me throughout the years, so are we going to get a crown when we get to heaven? And what does that look like? Like, is there a princess crown for the girls? Is there, you know, like, what kind of crowns do we get? The scripture in this context isn't talking about a physical, unfading crown that when we are in glory with God, He's and here you go, right? What's your size again? Seven, and, and there we go. We're, you know, net. No. He's talking about the crown of victory, sitting in the glory of God, basking in righteousness that has been given to you because of Christ. The crown is eternity with God. It's heaven. That's the crown. It never fades. It remains. It's not going anywhere. You can take whatever you want from it, and it will replenish itself. That's the picture. When he's your chief shepherd, when he appears and takes his children, guess what? He's not the hired hand. I will never, I will never forsake you. I will never leave you. Come on. Isn't God just so ridiculously amazing, friends? It's a passage like this that just grows your love. And then he says this in verse 5. Interesting. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. So this could, this could get fun for me here, right? If I misunderstood the passage. The passage is key with the first word there, which is what? Which is likewise. Well, likewise... 
means that he's staying with the theme. And what's been the theme in the nature of eldership? It's been an office, right? A church pastor, a shepherd, an overseer. Because many people will take this passage and they will say, okay, so there's, there's some type of age range for pastors. And, and then that would be where, well, that's convenient, Mark, because you're 30, right? But the passage here isn't talking about an age range for elders like the presidency is, what, 35 or 45, whatever it is. What is it, Jamie? 35, right? It's not like that. This is talking about the office of eldership. And specifically, when he says those who are younger submit, he's staying consistent with the theme. All through 1 Peter, what's been the theme? Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. He also says submit to the government, even when it's bunk. He also says submit to your employers, even when they're bunk. And here he says, if you're younger, submit to the elders. His big thrust is this. It's towards the young men. Why do I say that? The phrasing and the fact that he's already spoken to the women says that Peter is concerned about ambitious, young, flesh-seeking men that come in the church, that begin to raise their own agendas, and that don't sit in submission to those who are the called men to lead the church, and they begin to connive, and they begin to cheat, they begin to deceive. This is specifically saying, young men of the church, submit to those who are your elders. And this is just not in our nature. Though the passage doesn't infer it here, I don't want to for a second diminish this, and I'm going to take a second to teach on this. We are praying for for more folks who are 40 and older. We need them here. Why? Look at the average age in this room, all right? Whatever it is, I don't know what it is, 26, 27, okay? We need more 40 plus as as those who are elders by nature, not by office, who can disciple and pour in and show us what a marriage looks like after 10 years. Most of us in this room have been married 10 years and under. We need more 40 plus, amen? No, 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 no. That just discouraged every single 40-year-old in this room, right? We need more 40 40 and older, amen? Amen. We need more, amen? And so you you know what says you need more is when you start praying for more. And when the 40-plus come in here, you go right there and you begin to talk and engage and you begin to learn from them instantly, no matter where they're at in life. We need them here in this church. And don't for one second think that we're trying to build a college or a younger age church. That's not our heart, though we love college students and though we'll continue to reach out to them. Our heart is to be a diverse church. That's our heart. So we pray that the elders who are in office of this church can continue to be servant leaders in such a way that the young men and the young women of this church could submit to the leadership and guidance of those men. Now, an amazing passage. Look at this. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Okay, let's do, let's do some Greek work. Uh, when Jesus is getting ready to wash the disciples' feet, you know what the scripture says? The scripture says he takes off his robe and he puts on a what? He puts on a towel or an apron. And when he does this, the literal Greek phrasing is he, he girds up his loins or he puts together 
this, this drapery, essentially. It's the same phrasing here. Used as that of Christ. When he kneels down to wash the feet of his disciples, clothe yourself with humility toward one another for what? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He's quoting Proverbs 3.34. It's also mentioned in James. Let's close with this question. Why does God oppose the proud but give grace to the humble? It's a big question, isn't it? I've wrestled with it for a lot of years. I've seen it in a lot of different passages. It makes for a great Christian t-shirt, right? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Why? Why does God oppose the proud? You would think that there maybe would even be some celebration of those who are confident and kind of teeter that line. Why does God oppose the proud? Two big reasons. The first. Do you remember why Lucifer got kicked out of heaven? You remember why that whole battle went down? It's because Lucifer wanted to be God in his pride, in his arrogance, thinking that he could be equal to God. God said this, there is only one God, one Lord, one church, all of the scripture, all the way, one shepherd, one flock. I am the only God, and so he said, be gone. The very beginning of Satan is the picture of pride because Satan desired to hold the office of God. God opposed the proud because the proud say they are God. You may say, well, I've never said I'm a God before. Well, maybe that one day, but that was just a fluke, right? No. Any day that you elevate yourself, your needs, your desires, your hopes, your dreams, and ultimately in such arrogance and pride that we all struggle with, put ourselves on the throne, we're saying that we deserve to be worshipped, maybe only by ourselves. God opposes the proud because there's one God. One worthy of worship. One worthy of being followed. One that gave his grace, sent his son. Are we together? He opposes the proud because there's one God. And the ultimate piece of pride is saying that you and I can become like God. It's what Adam and Eve believed in Satan too. Did God really say, come on, you can be like God? No. There's one God. Second reason. His nature is revealed in humility. God, being a jealous, just God, sends his son, Philippians 2 says, and Jesus humbly comes to the earth and God reveals his character manifested in Jesus and the peace of that character is what? Humility. Unbelievable. The God of the universe, who we just said there's one God, one God worthy to be praised, one God who sits on the throne, one God who is worthy and higher above any other name, a piece of that character is humility. Yes, still a jealous God, Yes, still knowing full well who he is as God. But sent his son in humility to die. That's why God opposed the proud. But extends grace to those who say, 
if left to my own devices, I'm a mess. Can I ask you this? Is he your chief shepherd, friends? What would be your, your response tonight in mourning and repentance? Are you looking at repentance as just some half-hearted emotion? Or is it the cry of David, create in me a clean heart? The power of repentance and the opportunity of repentance is seen in this meal that was called the Passover. It began as the uh, ancient Jews put lamb's blood over their doorposts. God brought the Jews out of slavery from Egypt, establishing this ancient ritual called the Passover. And Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, during the Passover feast, hundreds of years later, listen, he takes the bread and he breaks it. Now, the disciples had seen this before. They knew the rhetoric, they knew the pattern. But this time they hear, this is my body which is broken for you. They had never heard that a part of the Passover. These were new words. And in one sentence, Jesus brings all of the focus of the scripture towards himself. This is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat. Those desiring of repenting tonight, turning from your sin and saying, oh God, I desire for you to be my chief shepherd. The body of Christ is all you have. Then he takes the cup and he holds it high. The, the blood of the lamb and the, the ancient Jews represented freedom from slavery. And now the blood of Christ, which he calls the new covenant as he holds the cup up, represents freedom from the slavery of sin. Not just the bondage of Egypt, but now freedom from sin, relationship with Christ. For those of you that would call him the chief shepherd, this cup, which represents his blood, is all you've got. Tonight, the three elders, Matt, Jeff, and I are going to serve you who are believers in this room, the Lord's Supper. And I'm going to ask right now that each of us, as a church desiring to seek the face of Christ, look deep within us and ask ourselves, is he really my chief shepherd? And in the areas right now that you feel distant from God, would you repent of those by the grace of Christ? And would your walk to take this meal signify the joy of the Lord being your strength? Though I mourn in repentance, though I know I'm incapable and unable, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Though I fail today, though I will fail tomorrow, the joy of the Lord is my strength. So now in this moment, may remorse and repentance and mourning married with joy, create in us a clean heart. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for the promise that you can be our personal chief shepherd. And I thank you for the fact that by your power and grace that we can know you and hear your voice and have deep-rooted relationship with you. 
And so God, I pray for my own life and heart tonight that you would bring me to a humble place with the recognition that I am not God and therefore I need one. And you are that answer. So God, break us in humility. Grab our hearts and pull us to yourself and remind us that we're your kids. Respond when you're ready, church.